Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's a high bar. Uh, I wonder if some of you hear commands like that and feel spiritually beat down because actually obeying them seems so far-fetched for you. Uh, You know you'll just end up failing, so you throw your hands up and settle for spiritual status quo because you have little confidence that your effort will make any difference. If a little child takes a big step, which amounts to about one foot, and asks you, can you do that? You're probably feeling okay about the whole thing because you can step two, three feet. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. But if a neurosurgeon hands you a set of tools and asks you to remove a tumor from someone's brain and he says, don't worry, I'm going to walk you through it. Step by step, you watch what I do with, with my patient and you do the same thing with your patient. So just be careful with your cuts. And the, you know, we're going to get overwhelmed at that. We're going to be very, very overwhelmed. You, you probably know what God wants you to do. Of course you should be selfless. Of course you should be humble and a lot of other things. But obedience sometimes seems impossible. It feels like we can't even begin to do it right. So we might try for a little bit. But it's often short-lived because it seems impossible. Does that resonate with you at all? Maybe you need to look at your faith in Christ from a new angle this morning, and I think this might help you. We need to think more comprehensively about our faith in Christ and what Christ does for us every day through faith. Faith in Christ is trusting that Christ has saved us by his life, death, and resurrection. But faith is more. Faith in Christ is also trusting or believing that because Christ has saved us, he will also empower us for obedience. Through faith, Christ feeds us an endless supply of effective grace and power to obey. So when God's commands seem daunting to us or unlivable for us, Faith in Christ is believing that through our union with Christ, Christ will empower us to do what he calls us to do. Christ is more than than an example for you to follow. He is the power in you to follow. Now, this message is content heavy. I can't do anything really about that. Paul was the one that wrote it. It's content heavy, and you need to think carefully. And I apologize. I messed the sermon notes up. The sermon title is wrong. All right? So it's all messed up, and that means you got to think even more carefully. But please follow along. Please follow along and think, because these four verses uncover so Stunning things about Jesus. And if your heart is ready to listen and if your heart is ready to receive these things from God, God will speak to you a compelling message of 
bold hope and expectation that will help you immensely. Most good scholarship understands Philippians 2, 6 through 11 to be a beautiful ancient church hymn. Its structure is poetic and it expresses some of the most mind-blowing truths about Christ. These short verses have the ability to really set your heart afire with wonder and awe and joy because Paul focuses on Christ as the preeminent illustration of selfless humility. Paul invites us to walk in the beautiful garden of Christ's selfless humility. And as you stroll and as you admire Christ's beauty, I hope you see more than an example to follow. I hope you see Christ as your ability to follow. God is calling us to have the mind of Christ. God is calling us to have the mind of Christ. Paul begins verse 5 with this, have this mind among yourselves. And he's referring back to the selfless and humble mind he just described in verses 3 and 4, which we looked at last week. But Paul told the Corinthian Christians, we have the mind of Christ. Didn't the Philippians have the mind of Christ? By faith and their union with Christ, every believer has the mind of Christ. Yet they must have it more and more as God conforms their minds to Christ's mind. The call for Christians continues to be to live out more faithfully what they already are in Christ. In verses 5 through 8, Christ is the perfect illustration, perfect illustration of the kind of selfless and humble mind God is calling us to have. The kind of mind that compels and directs a lifestyle of selfless humility. The second part of verse 5 is complex. There's no Greek verb there. So it reads like this. Have this mind among yourselves, which also in Christ Jesus. And though the ESV translates it this way, which is yours in Christ Jesus, and that's certainly true... I think a better translation would be, which was also in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus is the perfect pattern of the mind we should have and the mind that we do have in him. Now, these verses are among the most powerful portrayals of Christ's incarnation. And they concisely hail the unfathomable extent and wonder of Christ's humility. Paul began here. Jesus refused to use his divine identity to his own advantage. Jesus refused to use his divine identity to his own advantage. Talking about Christ, verse 6 says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? Imagine dissecting a frog with a chainsaw. Okay, that's gross. Not a good idea. You need a scalpel. And you must cut cautiously, pulling back the layers uh, very carefully and pinning them down so you can expose more and more of the anatomy of the frog and you can learn the anatomy of the frog. Don't just blow through Scripture. Dissect it. 
carefully, slowly examine it. So let's dissect the first part here. Who though he was in the form of God, what does it mean that Jesus Christ was in the form of God? First, because Paul introduced the birth of Christ in the next verse, the statement he was in the form of God alludes to the eternal pre-existence of Christ. Second, Christ existed in the form of God, which is contrasted later with the form of a slave in verse 6. Same word. The contrast sets the lowest form of a slave against the highest form of God, which does what? It implies the deity of Jesus Christ. Third, Paul added the phrase equality with God, which Christ possessed, a further confirmation of his deity, and we'll look at that a, a closer a little later. For the meaning of the word form refers to the true and exact nature of something, which in this case is God. Christ, therefore, eternally possessed the true and exact nature of God. The Greek word for form, it only appears three times in, in the New Testament. So it's helpful to look at some other verses in Scripture that help us interpret or, or could, uh, could help us just better understand what this form of God might mean. Among several good verses, these two are particularly helpful. Keep in mind, Jesus is the eternal word of God, and John 1.1 says this about Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, there are other good texts, but Scripture teaches that Christ is by nature God. Paul began with the deity of Christ here so that what he wrote next, what he wrote after that, would show the extreme lengths that Christ went to to put the interests of others first. Now, after I proposed to Christina, which was a while ago, she, of course, wore the diamond ring that I gave her. She still wears it. And the lighting of North Park Church, where, where we went, was luminous for diamonds. And so, sitting there, waiting for the service began, at least I hope it wasn't during the service, she'd look at her diamond and she'd say, sparkle, sparkle, sparkle. And it really would. It really would. Because her ring just exploded with light. I mean, it should have. I paid $25,000 for it. Just kidding, I did. No, no. I'm not even sure it's a real diamond. I don't... Just kidding. It is real. Christina, it's real. It's real. All right. Jesus is like a diamond. He sparkles because he is supremely brilliant and he emanates the glory of God. You must see the flawlessness and purity of his nature and the weight and brilliance of his resplendent glory to understand the extent of his humility and why we as his followers should be humble like him. Verse 6 continues did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's been confusing for me. It seems as if equality with God is something distant from Christ 
that he didn't want to reach for, that he couldn't grab for. But Scripture shows that Jesus thought that he was equal with God. In John 5.18, the Jews wanted to stone Jesus because he was making himself equal with God. In John 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one, and the Jews wanted to stone him again because he was making himself God. In John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So what does Paul mean? Something clicked for me this week as I'm studying this deeply. Paul was actually saying in verse 6 that equality with God was something Christ already had. The meaning of verse 6 is perhaps more obvious if you add one simple word, did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped. So if Jesus possessed equality with God, what does a thing to be grasped mean? The phrase is actually one Greek word, arpagmos. This is the only place that this word appears in Scripture. So cross-referencing, not going to work here. So it's, it's sticky to translate. It can mean various things. I think the best option is to understand it as something that is exploited uh, for personal advantage. Holding on to something for the purpose of advancing selfish ambition. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is a good version, translates it like this did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Imagine if Jesus had grasped his equality with God and used it for his own advantage here on earth. That would have had terrifying implications for us. Terrifying. But Jesus didn't grasp his equality with God. He didn't use it to selfishly advance his own agenda. Instead, he selflessly advanced the Father's agenda, which included shame and suffering and the greatest joy of others. Jesus came to serve, not to exploit his equality with God. How different this man Jesus is from us. Oh, how different. Dr. G. Walter Hansen wrote this. In contrast to the natural human tendency to say yes to every opportunity to exploit personal advantages of position and power for selfish purposes, this person said no to the exploitation of his divine position and his unlimited power for his own selfish pursuits. Jesus is the personification of humility. There is no greater example to see humility than Christ. So if Christ Jesus didn't grasp his equality with God to use it for his own purposes, what did he do? Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a human slave. Where verse 6 shows you the humble mind of Christ, verse 7 shows you the humble movements of Christ. Verses 7 and 8 show you how Christ lived out humility. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or slave, being born in the likeness of men. Existing in the form of God, he took on the form of a slave. Saints, that's indescribable humility. What can we say to summarize that brand of humility? Now, much has been written about 
uh, what Christ emptied himself of. What did he empty himself of? Well, we need to be careful with this phrase and not take it further than Paul did and not lose sight of Paul's point. Paul was calling the Philippians and all Christians to do nothing from selfish ambition and conce- or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than themselves, to look not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. And Paul wanted to show them exactly what Christ did, how he did that himself. What better way to motivate Christians to live a life of of humility than to show them that their fearless leader, Jesus, already lived that life of humility. So what did Christ empty himself of? The canonic theory says that Jesus Christ emptied himself of his divine nature. It says he exchanged the form of God for the form of a slave and ceased to be God. The canonic theory has long been considered heresy, and is problematic for various reasons. Now, I don't have time to show you the passages to back this up, but the New Testament and church history unmistakably teach that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. Two natures in one person. The New Testament affirms the deity and the humanity of Christ. His emptying was his lowly incarnation. The incarnation displays the incredible condescension of the Son of God from all the rights and privileges as God. He he descended from the splendors and entitlements of heaven to the slums and injustices of earth. John Calvin said, Christ surrendered his divine rights and cloaked his divine glory by becoming human in the form of a slave. His existence in the form of God was both manifested and concealed in the form of a slave. His act of self-emptying was the incarnation, end of quote. J.B. Lightfoot added, quote, He divested himself not of his divine nature, for that was impossible, but of the glories, the prerogatives of deity, end of quote. A.W. Tozer added this, He never emptied himself of any attributes of deity. Rather, he emptied himself of the accoutrements of deity. He emptied himself of the evidences of the deity. End of quote. As God, Christ was entitled to all glory and honor and worship, yet he left celestial privilege in exchange for earthly humiliation. He let go of his rights. He let go of his entitlements. He let go of his claims. He emptied himself of all of them. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 captures part of this, I think. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That touches on it. He emptied himself by taking the form of of a slave. What a contrast with form of God. That contrast shows the degree of Christ's humility. Now the ESV, which you know I love, translates the Greek word doulos as servant. But you're hearing me say slave. Most modern translations get this wrong, ESV included. 
The Holman Christian Standard Bible is a modern translation that gets it right. And very responsibly, they attach a little note to the word slave in verse 7. And this is what the note says. The strong Greek word doulos cannot be accurately translated in English as servant or bondservant. The HCSB translates this word as slave not out of insensity to the legitimate concerns of modern English speakers, but out of a commitment to accurately convey the brutal reality of the Roman Empire's inhumane institution as well as the ownership called for by Christ. The right word, my friends, is slave, not servant, in part because for us, servant is more palatable. It doesn't have quite the pop, but it diminishes the contrast between God and slave, which is what Paul intended to show, this great, incredible, infinite chasm between these two realities. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Alpha and the Omega, the Creator of the universe, took on the form of a slave, the lowest and most objectionable status of a human being. Servant doesn't go low enough. God taking on human flesh in the form of a slave is meant to sound shocking. It's meant to be unnerving because it is shocking and unnerving. And yet it's also magnificent, magnificent. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament explains that there is no term that stands in greater contrast to the terms Lord and God than doulos or slave. It was one thing for the Son of Man to come in the likeness of men, yet even more disreputable to come in the form of a slave. Can, can you see how immeasurably selfless and humble that incarnation is? Christ's emptying was also his becoming born or being born in the likeness of men. He more than resembled a man. He actually became a man. He was a man. Yet he was different. He was human. Yet he was without original and actual sin. He was a man, but yet he was also God. Friends, what you read in Scripture is true. The Word did become flesh and live among us, John 1.14. God did send his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, Romans 8.3. God did send forth his Son born of a woman and born under the law, Galatians 4.4. 4. The one mediator between God and men is the anthropos, or man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. Friends, he was like us in our flesh, and yet he was different from us. Wherever you and I have been selfish and prideful, Christ has been selfless and humble. Where your ambition has been narcissistic, his ambition has been altruistic. Where you have put yourself first, he has put others first. He took the form of a slave so he could look out for the best interests of others. Now, there are many humble things that Christ has done, that he has accomplished, that we absolutely cannot do. We cannot be God. We cannot be Savior. We cannot be Lord. We cannot reign supreme. But nonetheless, 
Paul is setting Christ forward as our perfect pattern of humility. And his humility goes even further. Jesus humbled himself by obeying God to the point of crucifixion. He humbled himself by obeying God to the point of crucifixion. Jesus took on flesh like we have flesh. With one significant difference. He had no sin and no guilt. However, he was subject to the infirmities and weaknesses of human flesh. He felt pain. Stress, hunger, thirst, fatigue. And though he had no original or actual sin, he was subject to these certain effects of sin on his body. And if that wasn't enough to prove his selfless uh, humility, Jesus Christ went even farther. He subjected himself to the most humiliating, the most excruciating experience known in the first century world, crucifixion. His physical pain was inestimable. Uh, Without the final act, this final act of selfless humility, no one would be saved. No one. If Christ had stopped short of the humiliation of the cross, eternal life would be eternally inaccessible for you and for me. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To say Christ was found in human form is to say people saw him as a human being. Many people in the first century saw God in the flesh, and yet they didn't know. They didn't know. All they could see was this poor Jewish carpenter, this common man. He spoke to them. He touched them. He ate with them. And yet most of them just simply saw a man. How did Paul say Jesus Christ humbled himself? He became obedient to the point of death. But not just death. A scandalous death. A horrific death on a cross. It was was God's plan for him to come and for him to die by crucifixion in order to redeem and save God's people. Selfless humility was the only way he could secure the eternal joy of God's people. He had to be humble. When Paul said obedient to the point of death, he was saying Jesus went as far as, Jesus went to the degree of death crucifixion, to accomplish perfect humility and therein the redemption of the elect. Jesus was so humbly committed to obey God in everything that he gave his life to carry out the will of God and redeem God's people through suffering, suffering. Cicero, he was a Roman philosopher among other things, and he called crucifixion, quote, a most cruel and disgusting Punishment. For Cicero, the the cross was, quote, the worst extreme of tortures inflicted upon slaves. Cicero wrote, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. Saints, Crucifixion is the extent of Christ's humility. 
he was slaughtered as a slave on slabs of wood to act in the best interests of, get this, you. You and me. The cross is the consummate illustration of looking to the interests of others. Now, God is speaking to you right now. Through these verses, God is showing you the inestimable worth of his son. And God is calling you to marvel at his son, to marvel at his humility, to marvel at his selflessness. Will you marvel? Will you marvel? Will you marvel at Christ's humility with such acuity and intensity that you pursue selfless humility in every situation, even when other people so, are so brash and so arrogant to oppose you? Will you marvel at Christ? I want to close out with two simple things. Jesus is our perfect pattern and powerful provision of humility. Perfect pattern, powerful provision. Saints, and I say saints, it is assumed, saints, that you desire to follow Jesus with all your heart. That's assumed in being a saint. That is what a Christian is. That is what a saint is. That is what a a follower of Jesus is, someone who follows Jesus. He is our perfect pattern of humility. And though we are different from him, we are nonetheless called to have his mind and his brand of humility. But here is a mistake that Christians make. Some Christians make this mistake. Here it is. They make a big, 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 big deal of following Christ's example And they make so little of a deal of his sovereign grace. And what I mean is for many professing Christians, morality eclipses the gospel. Their emphasis seems to be on what people should do to be like Jesus instead of what Jesus has done to make people like him. Now, if I told you this morning, follow the pattern of Christ... That would not be good news for you. But let's face it, none of us, none of us can live up to the standard of Christ. That's not good news. And that's why we need to hear the gospel this morning. Dr. Hansen wrote something that I'd like you to think about. Please think about this. I'm going to repeat it twice just so you get it. He said this, Christian behavior is motivated and empowered By salvation in Christ, not the example of Christ. I'll say it again. Christian behavior is motivated and empowered by salvation in Christ, not by the example of Christ. Jesus is absolutely our perfect example and pattern of humility But his example is not what motivates or empowers anyone. Who has the inherent ability to follow Christ's good example? Do you? Do I? No one. He is our powerful provision for humility. Therefore, we need to walk by faith. We need to walk by the Spirit to follow his example. 
we are not selfless and humble like we should be. We know that. But when we trust in Christ alone, all of his selfless humility showcased and accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection is credited to us by faith. His righteousness becomes ours. So though we fail over and over and over again in the area of selfless humility, God considers us perfectly and utterly selfless and humble because of the accomplishments of his son that we receive by faith. So the gospel says that even when your ambition is selfish and even when you boast in yourself and even when you put your interests first, because you trust in Christ alone, God sees you as a selfless and humble person living to glorify him. Hear this now. Don't you sleep on me. Hear this. God accepts you as perfectly selfless and humble because of the merits of Christ's humility. But there's more. When you trust in Christ alone, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ lives in you to motivate you, to empower you to live a selfless and humble life. Jesus in you is the essential component of you being able to follow his example. And as perfect as your Im- as imperfect rather, as your imitation of Christ will be, you will remain eternally loved by God by the Father, and the Holy Spirit will work more and more and more and more to conform you to the image of Christ. Is this not the participation in the Spirit that Paul mentioned in verse 1? Don't try to follow Christ's example by your own determination and will. You can't. You can't. You will either swell up with this blind conceit or drown beneath the guilt of not measuring up. Either way, you're going to fail miserably. Renounce your self-sufficiency, renounce your self-dependency, and trust Christ. Trust Christ. He is able to work in you so you can be more and more and more like him. The way to selfless humility is not your works or your merit. The way to selfless humility is faith or trust in Christ alone. Following Jesus begins with frailty and dependency, not self-sufficiency and competency. You must humble yourself before Christ in order to find the rhythm of his humility in life. Let me give you a foretaste of the coming weeks. I think it, it drives this last point home. So I want to end with a verse we'll get to in a little bit. Philippians 2.13 tells us exactly where our ability and humility comes from. It says, for it is God... It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Christ is our pattern. And he is our glorious provision for humility. God and Father, you are so gracious to give us your son Jesus. We need his righteousness because we have no righteousness of our own. We need his humility as a gift to us because we have no humility of our own. And we receive the full righteousness of Christ imputed, counted as ours by faith. We simply need to renounce ourselves and trust in Christ. And so God, I pray that this morning you would produce in the hearts of my dear brothers and sisters such radical humility that they never do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, that they always put others before themselves. And when they fail, and when I fail, we shall rely on the righteousness of Christ, which is ours by faith. You are so gracious and kind and loving and tender, Father, to give us your son and all of his righteousness. And I pray that we follow his example with great zeal, not on our own power, not to show how great we are, but to show his inestimable worth and glory and power and beauty and sufficiency. Your grace is sufficient, and it is you that works in us so that we can will and work for your pleasure and your glory. In the name of Christ, for the fame of Christ, we pray. Amen.